If you are able to stand, would you do so now to receive the gospel this morning? Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment be made. So the slave fell to his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of the clearest memories that I have of the years when I was in school was of a particular day in science class when I was in the seventh grade. One day we were all assembled waiting for the teacher to walk in the room. That particular teacher was more than a little bit stern. So we knew when we got to our seats to sit quietly, and we did. And then he walked into the room over to the middle to the middle of the room in the front and he took a ball that he had in his hand and he drew back and he threw that ball as hard as he could against the back wall of the room. It was like a tennis ball. And that tennis ball hit the back wall of the room and it bounced back to where he was and he caught it. We were, we were fully attentive at that moment. <laughs> If you can imagine. And then he looked at us and he said, for every action, there is always an equal and opposite reaction. 
And we remembered what he said. <laughs> and then over the next couple of, and you know, <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. Um, it was 50 years ago that I was in the seventh grade. Wouldn't that teacher be pleased? <laughs> Wouldn't he be happy to know that that the lesson he taught that day stuck in the mind of at least one kid in the class? And then we spent the next couple of weeks talking about how that principle is always working in, in the physical world. For every action, there is always an equal and opposite reaction. And that principle always applies. It always works throughout the natural world. I learned it then. I still know it. And I think about it from time to time. So, I was more than a little bit disillusioned when I later realized that that principle of action and reaction is not thoroughly universal. For whenever we are involved with people and dealing with people, there is not always a reaction equal to every action. We often receive, I often receive, kindness and care and wisdom, and forgiveness, and love, and my reaction is not always equal to what I receive. And then, one good turn is not always followed by another. Kindness is not always greeted with open arms. The good guys don't always win, and the bad guys always lose. And with many of us, I know with myself, there's often a lot of action on me, but very little reaction from me. Much input and little output. So when, when you're dealing with human beings, there's not always an equal reaction to every action. That was, that was Jesus' perspective as he taught his followers a critically important lesson. Peter thought he was being magnanimous when he was willing to forgive someone who had wronged him seven times. The law only required three times. Peter was being gracious seven times. And Jesus responded, in effect, forgiveness is not something that you count. It's just the way you live. It's a way of life, not something that we have to think about and quantify all the time. And Jesus went on to tell a story, one of his, one of his remarkable parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this, he said. A king forgave the debt of a slave who owed him millions of dollars. But that very same slave refused to forgive the debt of another who owed him just a few dollars. And the king condemned wicked slave. I forgave you your large debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy upon your friend as I had mercy on you? The king might have said, I acted upon you with mercy and forgiveness, but your reaction was not equal to it. Instead of an equal reaction to my mercy and forgiveness, you reacted mercilessly. You absorbed and benefited from the mercy that you were shown, but you did not return it when you had the opportunity. All of this is is incredibly important to us for two reasons. First of all, forgiveness is an unnatural act. 
It's not something that's natural to us. It doesn't come naturally. Human beings are not good at forgiveness. It, it is not some, some innate, natural, human reaction. We are more comfortable and more likely to be vengeful, to practice retribution and violence. Those are more natural human qualities. It is natural for human beings to defend themselves. It is natural for us to, to, to assume a defensive position when we are attacked and to, and to howl about it when we are wronged and to bite back when we are bitten. Forgiveness is, is not a natural thing. It is not a, not a, a universal natural human virtue. Fred Snodgrass was a successful baseball player for the Giants. He played a century ago. But he was remembered for one of his failures. In the 1912 World Series, Fred Snodgrass dropped a pop fly ball. His error set up the winning run for the next batter hit a single. And consequently... Because of his error, the Giants lost that game and lost the World Series in 1912. When Fred Snodgrass died in 1974, the New York Times printed this headline. Fred Snodgrass, 86, dead, ball ball player muffed fly in 1912. Can you believe it? 62 years later, and they could not forget his mistake. Never mind that that Fred had later become the mayor of the city of Oxnard, California. He had been a successful banker and a rancher. He had raised a fine family. But he dropped a pop fly in 1912, and they punished him for it even after he was dead. Forgiveness is not natural. It's, It's not an innate, natural human ability. To be forgiven. It's something that we have to learn. Something we need to practice. And, and, and it, it, it goes against the grain of who we, who we are. Just, just listen to the world around you. Listen to the news sometimes. You know, one of the things that, that, that troubles me that I hear over and over, when something goes wrong, when something, when something is amiss, the first question we ask is, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Who can we pin it on? Who needs to be punished? First question we ask. You see, forgiveness is not a natural sort of thing. Um, how often do we hear, how often do we hear the word justice? As if justice is something that can be achieved all the time. Can't be. Justice is something that can be served. It's something that can be approached sometimes. But not very often achieved. But how often do we hear it? Looking for a place to pin the blame. Looking for a way to achieve justice. Forgiveness is not the first thing that occurs to us. It's not something that comes natural to us. The consequences of doing it and not doing isn't something that we consider and compute. I came across an intriguing story some years ago. I may have told you about this before. Um, story about a man who owned... Um, a, a, a building lot in a very exclusive residential area in a large city. And of course, being an exclusive lot in a large city, this lot was very valuable. But it had nothing on it. And it presented 
an unusual problem. Because this lot that he owned was only a couple of yards wide and a hundred feet long. There was, there was nothing he could do with it. Only six, six or seven feet wide and a hundred feet long. The, the only thing he could do with such an oddly proportioned piece of real estate was to, to sell it to one of the neighbors on each side, on either side, so that, that their, their lot and their, uh, their holdings would be a bit bigger. So, so the story was that he, he first went to the neighbor on the east side and, and asked if he might be interested in buying this strip of land. And uh, the neighbor said, sure, uh, I'd, be, I'd be glad to buy it from you. Um, uh, nothing else you can do with it. I'll, I'll do you a favor and take it off your hands. And then he made him a, uh, a real ridiculously low offer for the thing, so much so that it, that it made the fellow mad. And uh, so he went to the neighbor on the west side and made him the same offer. And he responded uh, um, uh, that... that uh, he he really had him over a barrel, don't I? Uh, nobody else will buy it from you. I'll take it off your hands. And his offer was even lower. So the owner of this strange piece of real estate was was beside himself with rage. He was so angry that he went out and hired an architect who designed a house for him to be built on that narrow lot. And then... He hired a contractor and he built one of the strangest houses ever conceived. Five feet wide and a hundred feet long. It was little more than, than a few tiny rooms, one in front of the other, hardly able to accommodate a piece of furniture in any of them. The neighbors complained that that bizarre structure would blight the neighborhood, but, but city officials couldn't find any code or regulation to prevent him from building it. So when it was finished, the man moved into his uncomfortable and impractical house and he stayed there until his death. And it became known in the neighborhood as Spite House. Spite House. And it's as it stood as a monument to this man's anger and his hate. Well, story sounds fascinating enough, but it gets even better. When I heard that story... I wanted to see a picture of Spite House and see what a house would look like if it's only five feet wide and a hundred feet long. So I went to the internet and I looked up Spite House and you know, I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it there at all. Not because there were no entries under Spite House, but because there were so many. So many spite houses and spite fences all over the world. People that build the strangest things just to get back at their neighbors. They build these awful structures just to express their anger. Spite houses and spite fences everywhere. Forgiveness is not natural. We're not, we're not good at it. It doesn't just come to us. It's something that we have to, that we have to learn about. Something that we have to, to practice and work on. And we don't always get it perfect. And we don't always get it right. But it's still something we have to practice and work at if it's going to become a reality among us. Jesus talked about this matter of forgiveness for two reasons. First of all, I think Jesus understood better than most of us. Jesus understood that it is difficult. Forgiving has to be one of the hardest things that human beings 
are called upon to do because it's not natural. It's one of the most difficult things that we can undertake. But the second reason Jesus talked about it is this. Forgiveness is essential. It is indispensable for human life and for human relationships and for the community of people who follow Jesus. It has to be. We have to embrace it. We have to work on it. We have to keep trying to get it right even though we failed. Someone has suggested that that we imagine a brand new Cadillac sitting in your driveway. It's it's painted one of those new exquisite colors and it's the kind of car that just draws people's attention to it and it's sitting of all places in your driveway. Sounds good. You open the door, you get inside and look around at the all leather interior, the seats that adjust in 40 different directions. Turn on the CD player and the 11 speakers pour forth equalized music. It's pure ecstasy. The engine, well, you can't even hear it when you turn it on. It's so quiet and and calm. The feeling of power as you put it into gear and move out of the driveway makes you lightheaded. You put the car into drive and press on the accelerator and it starts to move down the street. But then, just as it begins to move, it sputters and finally stops in front of your neighbor's house, blocking his driveway. You look around at the console and see there on that, on that, that brand new, uh, um, uh, computer that's in the center of the dashboard, you see what the onboard computer has to say, and after pushing just one button, it reads, you don't have any gas in the tank, egghead. (laughs) How embarrassing. You're sitting in the driver's seat, in, in, in a vehicle that, that most people will never have the opportunity to ride in, let alone own, and you can't go anywhere. Not only that, but you're blocking someone else's driveway. People walk by and look at you and wonder what kind of person you are to get in that kind of vehicle, but to fail to give it what it needs to make it go. So here you are, stuck, looking good in this fine Cadillac, but just going nowhere, sitting there blocking the street. The fellow who told me that story continued, the fuel that drives the church, the fuel that makes the church of Jesus Christ go is called forgiveness. There is no gospel without forgiveness. There is no relationship with God without forgiveness. It was the need for forgiveness, the restoration of a broken relationship that compelled God to send his child to live among us in the first place. One would expect That because of that, the church is the place where the fuel of forgiveness would flow like a mighty stream. But not often enough. We don't work at it hard enough. We don't practice it enough. We know what it is. We we know what it feels like and how it's supposed to work. But we don't make many sacrifices to practice the art of forgiveness. Forgiveness is... it's, It's not about leaving yourself open to further attack... It doesn't, forgiveness doesn't require that we leave people in places where they can't be trusted or in jobs that they cannot do. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that a person is given permission to continue on a destructive or, or unkind behavior that has caused pain to others. It doesn't mean that all the limits and boundaries and constraints have been removed. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, that the rule of love or of fairness or of honesty has been suspended. Forgiveness is about 
restoring broken relationships, mending friendships that have been hurt, rebuilding bridges between people that have been destroyed. There are many, many ways that things get broken, but there's only one way that they can be fixed. On a Friday afternoon, after we had stripped him of his dignity, after his friends had forsaken him and fled, after the soldiers had whipped him and spit on him, after the trial, we dragged him up a hill, nailed his hands and feet, and crucified him. And as he hung there, bleeding to death, he looked down at us, And he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. This we have received. What shall we give in return? Amen.